Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. Our friends at NPR Music are holding a contest to find the next great unknown musician or band. Here's the deal. Record one original song, no covers, post it to YouTube, and enter at npr.org slash tinydeskcontest by January 19th, 2015. The winner will be flown to Washington, D.C. to perform as part of the Tiny Desk Concert Series and play a couch trip into Austin showcase in March. Enter at npr.org slash Tiny Desk Contest. Good luck. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. And nature has many unknowns, but one certainty is that tomatoes and fish do not have sex with each other. They never have. And yet one of the most famous, or some might say infamous, feats of genetic engineering was the development of a tomato whose DNA was mingled with DNA from a fish, which gave it a longer life on the vine. And it worked. Then there's corn, where today some 90% of the corn grown in the United States has its DNA mixed with DNA that comes from a bacterium so that it will stand up better to pests. And that works. And is this a good thing, this genetic engineering, that nature could never accomplish on its own? Is it a safe thing? Is it necessary? Well, those questions sound like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, genetically modify food. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, who will argue for and against this motion. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then the live audience here in New York votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Our motion is genetically modified food. Let's meet the team first arguing for the motion. Please, let's welcome Robert Fraley. And Rob, you are uh, Executive Vice President, Chief Technology Officer at Monsanto. You've worked there 30 years. You are the winner of the World Food Prize Laureate. That's an award often described as the Nobel for food and agriculture. And it's related to this debate because of your work on what exactly? Well, thanks, John. Uh, yeah, that was a reward given uh, along with uh, two of my academic uh, colleagues for basically developing the uh, tools that have allowed us to create the GMO crops. There at the beginning. Robert Fraley, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm joined tonight by my uh, partner, Allison Van Enenum, who is going to, uh, to talk about uh, the technology as well and the benefits. Ladies and gentlemen, Allison Van Enenum. Allison, you are also arguing for the motion, genetically modified food. You're uh, a specialist in animal science at UC Davis. Uh, You've said that you chose to study agricultural science when you were still in high school, but that it wasn't an obvious choice for you. How come? Well, I'm an urban girl. I was born in the city in Australia, and I'm kind of a science nerd. Still am, actually. Um, And I was interested in how we might use science to improve the productivity of agriculture, and it's what I've spent my career uh, pursuing. Thank you, Alison Van Enenum. That's the team arguing for the motion. We have two debaters arguing against the motion, genetically modified food. Let's please first welcome Chuck Benbrook. Chuck, you are at Washington State. You are known for your research on pesticide use in particular. You've debated with us before, actually. You were a proponent of uh, organic food, and you won overwhelmingly, very decisively. So are you feeling lucky again tonight? Uh, I am, uh, John. We've, uh, we're well prepared, Marty and I, and uh, w- since we have the facts and science on our side, I think we'll be fine. <laughs> 
And tell us, please, who is this Marty of which you speak? My partner, uh, Margaret or Marty Mellon, is uh, going to help me make the case. Ladies and gentlemen, Margaret Mellon. Mellon. Uh, Marty Mellon, 18 years. You were with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Interestingly, while a scientist, you are also a lawyer. You are also the only debater on stage tonight with a last name, Mellon. That sounds like an actual edible product. <laughs> Coincidence? I don't think so. But my last name also sounds like uh, a bank. And <laughs> money is probably as important as food in this debate. Very clever. Ladies and gentlemen, Margaret Mellon. And that's our team arguing against the motion, which is genetically modify food. And let's go on to round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. Here to argue for the motion, please welcome Robert Fraley. He is Executive Vice President and Chief Technology Officer at Monsanto. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert Fraley. Just as a, as a quick test to the audience, how many of you know anybody who's a diabetic and who takes insulin? So, a lot of hands. So, actually, insulin was the first GMO product. And, uh, and now, uh, you know, that's the, the typical treatment, uh, and it's a, a safer, better product. Today in healthcare, just to, to give you a sense of the transformation, six of the top-selling drugs in the United States are based on GMO technology. So, tremendous progress. Let me, let me make it a little more food-related. How many of you eat cheese? All right. The first actual GMO product ever approved for food use was a product called, uh, called Renin. Renin is the enzyme that's actually used to, to, to make cheese. And today, 90% of our cheeses are, are based on GMOs using a safer approach and a more effective way of, uh, of making the technology. You know, I helped develop the first GMO plants back in the, uh, in the early uh, 1980s. And then we took... Uh, about another 15 years of additional studies and development before the first commercial products were launched in the, uh, the mid-1990s. And those were products that help farmers protect against insects and protect against weeds. So for insect protection, we actually use the very same BT protein that is used by organic farmers for years and built that into the plants to protect them from insects. And as a result of that, we saw dramatic reduction in insecticide use and an increase in, uh, in crop yields. And, and herbicide-tolerant crops have been a great enabler. They've enabled farmers to use safer and more environmentally friendly chemicals and replace the products that were, uh, were previously used. But they've also had a, a profound benefit to the environment of enabling farmers to, uh, to not plow their soils and, as a result, use less energy, release less carbon, and reduce erosion, which have been key. Today, if you look around the world, GMO crops are grown in about 27 countries. They're being used by 18 million, uh, million farmers. And to put it in perspective, this has been the most rapidly adopted technology in the history of, of agriculture. And that's because the benefits have been so real and so clear. I grew up on a farm. I've watched my dad make those decisions on which seeds to buy, which equipment to use, et cetera, et cetera. I can tell you that there's no farmer who would plant GMO crops if they didn't have a real benefit. And they certainly wouldn't have planted them for the last 20 years if they didn't have real value. And what I'm most proud about is the fact that these technologies have been in the marketplace for over 20 years, and there's not been a single not one issue of food or feed safety ever associated with the technology. And I'd make this point, that there's as strong a scientific consensus on the safety of GMOs as there is on the, uh, on the role of greenhouse gases and, uh, and climate change. So that's, uh, that's very important. 
Also, this technology is highly regulated. It's regulated by the government agencies in the U.S., but it's important to realize that we export grains to 40 countries around the world who have all researched and approved these products. Uh, and, and this is so key as, we, uh, as we, uh, we think about the future because we are on the brink of facing one of mankind's greatest challenges. Global population continues to grow. It's going to reach $9.5 billion by 2050. The demand for food will double by, uh, by 2050. And so the decisions we make and the votes that you make tonight are, are, are really important. We can do this, but it means working together. And it means Robert finding Fraley, a I'm common sorry. ground. I'm sorry your time is up. And using all of our tools. I'm so sorry I, your time is up. Thank you very thank much, you. Robert Fraley. Our motion, Genetically Modified Food, and here to speak against this motion, Margaret Mellon. She is a science policy consultant and former founding director of the Union of Concerned Scientists Food and Environment Program. Ladies and gentlemen, Margaret Mellon. Thank you very much, um, and thanks to Rob. Um, he made a number of points that I think uh, we're going to come back to over the, uh, over the course of the debate. But I want to focus my remarks uh, really on just one point, and that is whether or not genetically modified or genetically engineered, I'm going to use those two words interchangeably, whether those technologies are essential or even an important uh, technologies for meeting the challenge of feeding 9 billion people without destroying the earth. Now, I'm going to argue against that. Uh, but I understand why a lot of people believe that genetic engineering is the answer. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way the technology debuted. I mean, I was there in the early days when Monsanto came up with its products. I was working in Washington, D.C. for the environmental community. The place was abuzz uh, with the idea that a new molecular technology was on the way that would convert agriculture uh, into a, an environmentally benign activity. I was at the wildlife, the National Wildlife Federation when Monsanto folks came and said, you people in the environmental community ought to be the first to embrace this technology because it's going to reduce pesticide use. I wanted to learn more, and I did, when I went to Monsanto and got the tour out in St. Louis. And I was told it's not only going to reduce toxic use of chemicals, it's going to produce crops that can uh, fertilize themselves. It's going to produce crops that are high-yielding, uh, that will make famine a thing of the past, uh, that are re re uh, resistant to stress, to cold, to, to drought, to heat. Uh, my big question was that it was a brand-new technology using very new techniques, and would it work? Well, we have had now 30 years uh, to find out whether it's going to work, billions of dollars uh, in investment in it. And I think uh, there's just no doubt that compared to the vision, the early vision, it's a big disappointment. Um, now, after 30 years, there are no crops out there that fertilize themselves. There's one drought-tolerant crop that's drought-tolerant because of genetic engineering. There are no crops whose yields are the result of genetic engineering apart from making them uh, better able to deal with pests. I mean, you name it, it really hasn't happened. The days of, of glyphosate, I mean, we've run through the, the best herbicide that the, uh, that the world's had to offer. 
Glyphosate is no longer as useful as it once was, and it's getting less useful every day because resistant weeds are coming, and those resistant weeds are leading to more, um, to a greater and greater use of herbicides. But, you know, to answer my first question, a technology that after 30 years has not delivered, you know, on the full, uh, on the full range of products that it kind of promised uh, to the public early on, and in the one application where it has delivered, the benefits of the technology are now being reversed, and we are going in the direction of increased herbicide use. I mean, that is not a technology that is either essential or, I would argue, even important to addressing the major uh, agricultural challenges ahead of us. Thank you, Margaret Mellon. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion, genetically modified food. You have heard two of the opening statements, and now on to the third. Here to debate for the motion, Alison Van Eenenem. She is a genomics and biotechnology researcher and cooperative extension specialist in the Department of Animal Science at UC Davis. Ladies and gentlemen, Alison Van Eenenem. I'd like to start with a premise that I hope we can all agree on, and that is in the future, more people are going to need to be fed better with less environmental impact. And as a public sector scientist, my interest is finding real-world solutions to that problem. And to me, GM food offers one of those solutions. It's derived from crops produced using a breeding method based on the movement of useful genes from one species into another. GMO technology often gets conflated with Monsanto and Big Ag but it's actually a breeding tool, one that can be used for many purposes. As Rob mentioned, most commercialised GMO crops to date have been made to resist insects and herbicides and have been adopted by 18 million farmers globally. But importantly, 16.5 million of those farmers are in the developing world, both men and women, some of whom farm areas smaller than the size of the auditorium tonight. What have been the impacts of this widespread adoption? As a scientist, I go to the independent peer-reviewed literature to answer such questions. Recently, German university professors published a comprehensive analysis of 147 separate studies that assessed the impact of GM crops. They found that the benefits were significant, not only in the US, but more importantly in the developing world. On average, GM technology adoption has reduced chemical pesticide use by 37%, increased yields by 22% and increased farmer profits by 68%. This has benefited both farmer health and also the environment and beneficial insects. Now researchers throughout the public and private sector are using this breeding tool to deliver other benefits to society. Researchers at Hawaii and and Cornell University have used it to produce a virus-resistant papaya, a product which has literally saved the Hawaiian papaya industry. Other introductions include drought-resistant corn, 
virus-resistant squash, consumer traits like a non-browning apple, a low acrylamide potato, and crops that produce oils improved for nutrition. None of these applications require the use of any chemical pesticides, an issue that often gets conflated with this technology. University researchers are working to develop GM oranges that are resistant to citrus greening disease. And here in New York, researchers are using a wheat gene to develop GM American chestnut trees resistant to the imported chestnut blight. Plant diseases annually destroy some 15% of our world's agricultural harvest, a number that is likely to grow as our climate changes. There are literally dozens of other applications in field trials globally. Nitrogen-efficient and flood-tolerant rice, drought-tolerant wheat, and BioCassava Plus, a private-public partnership that will use GM to increase the nutrient levels, shelf life, and disease resistance of cassava, a major source of carbohydrates in parts of the world. Improved cassava harvests could increase the incomes of African households, helping lift poor farmers, many of them women, out of poverty. I could go on, but none of this would be possible without the broad scientific consensus about the safety of GM and solid data to support that consensus. The American Association for the Advancement of Science, the world's largest and most prestigious scientific society, stated in 2012, the science is quite clear. Crop improvement by modern molecular techniques of biotechnology is safe. They're joined by the World Health Organization, the American Medical Association, the US National Academy of Sciences, the British Royal Society, and every major regulatory agency in the world. Given the realized benefits, the potential of this science, and the documented safety record, I urge you to allow breeders to use this valuable method to improve crops and vote yes for tonight's motion. Thank you, Alison Van Eenenum. And the motion is genetically modified food. And here is our final debater to speak against the motion, Chuck Benbrook. He is a research professor at the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources at Washington State University. Ladies and gentlemen, Chuck Benbrook. I do think it's, it's time for sort of a national fireside chat about uh, the applications of agricultural biotechnology and food production. There's tough choices for our society about whether we want to go down this road of more intensive, specialized, uh, input-intensive in, uh, agriculture kind of with genetic engineering leading the, the train or whether we want to steer agriculture uh, in some other directions. So a couple of things I ask of the audience as you listen to the back and forth tonight, and there'll be, there'll be a lot of it. I ask you to vote on the reality of what genetically engineered crops, the ones that are on the market today, have actually brought about, and not just how well they worked for the first three or four years. And I think we, you know, the record's very clear. They were rapidly adopted. They worked very well. They were spectacularly effective, and particularly the Roundup-ready crops. And this, these are the so-called herbicide-tolerant crops, which made it easy for farmers to control weeds and Corn, soybeans, and cotton. Those were the three big crops. We'll mostly talk about those tonight. You know, don't base this on the promise and the aspirations of the biotechnology industry and the things that the biotech industry thinks that at some point the science will deliver. Things like corn plants that affix their own nitrogen or drought-tolerant crops or nutritionally enhanced crops. I also suggest and ask you to think about the impacts of genetically engineered crops as a package. It's not just the the genes that Rob Fraley and his colleagues at Monsanto 
were able to work into the corn plant, but you have to think about how that corn plant behaves in the, in the field, the yields, what the impacts of the Bt proteins that are all throughout that plant are on the environment, on aquatic ecosystems. And of course, in the case of the herbicide-tolerant crops, the, the great concern is this huge increase in herbicide use that's, that's started about a decade ago and has gotten worse and worse and worse each year. And, and now the, the, the industry and the government has just approved a, the next generation of, of herbicide-tolerant crops that are now engineered to tolerate two of the riskiest old herbicides that have been in use for a long time. You'll hear the word 2,4-D and, and dicamba. This is uh, definitely not a step in the, in the right direction. So we have to think about the totality of the impacts, including we have put so much energy as a country, and the industry has put most of its plant breeding in the GE basket for these uh, herbicide-tolerant crops and BT crops. And there's a lot of other priorities that plant breeders have not focused on as seriously as they should have. And, and that's a, that is a cost of the technology. We're going to talk a lot about uh, safety today. Um, rest assured, there is no consensus about the safety of GE foods, and there are a number of reasons to be more concerned in 2014 than we were in 1996, the year that they were introduced, or in 2000, which was about the time the adoption of herbicide-tolerant soybeans was very high. And really, with each passing year as more and more GE plants are, are uh, grown, as more herbicides are required, the list of both health concerns and envi environmental concerns is growing, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get back to them. Chuck Benbrook, I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank, Thank you. you very much. We'll get it. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is genetically modify food. Now on to round two. Round two is where the debaters address one another directly and take questions from me and from you at our live audience here in New York. Our motion is this, genetically modify food. The team arguing for the motion, Robert Fraley and Alison Van Eenenum, have argued that genetic engineering of food is no holy grail, but that it is a tool that can be used to help an enormous number of people. They say the proof of this is the fact that farmers have been using it because, in fact, it works for them. They say their safety has been established over 20 years without a single known injury related to the consumption of uh, genetically engineered food, that the studies are a waterfall of support for this argument and also for the benefits themselves of uh, genetically engineered food. And they talk about the possibilities in the future of plants that can crush, absolutely crush plant disease and survive. It's a lot of promise about the future. The team arguing against the motion, Margaret Mellon and Chuck Benbrook, they're saying don't look at the future, look at the present. And their argument is that so far... Uh, genetically engineered food has not lived up to its promise. It's pulled off a couple of very neat and important tricks, but not all that was promised in the beginning. They say that they're not necessary, that they are not proven safe, and that, in fact, uh, contrary to the other side's assertions, that there is no consensus on their safety. I want to go first to the safety question and take the argument back to Chuck Benbrook, who just completed in your opening statements. Chuck, you said that there is no consensus on this. Your opponents have actually framed the statement that there's no scientific consensus on the safety of genetically modified food is being akin to people challenging the science behind global warming. That They didn't literally say this, but you have to be a little bit of a crank 
not to buy the science. What's your response to that? Um, I've, I've read uh, essentially all of these statements by uh, various bodies, and, and here's what they essentially all say. They use slightly different words. They say that genetic, the genetic engineering of food as a technology does not create any new or different potential risks in the modified foods that other forms of plant breeding don't. Several of the reports, including both of the two National Academy of Science reports that specifically address this, say that there is a possibility that genetically engineered foods may pose higher risk of that nature, but we really don't know. And then they all go on to call for further investment and the development of more sensitive scientific techniques to assess the possible risks. And they also call for post-approval surveillance. And most of the recommendations for better science, more careful risk assessment, and post-market surveillance that have been made for over 15 years in these reports have not been acted upon in the U.S. Let's let your opponent, Robert Fraley, respond. Uh, you know, this science is, uh, has been around literally since the 1970s and had broad applicability to health and, and agriculture with an impressive safety record. I mean, not a single issue of animal or, or human safety with the technology. That's because it's inherent that we've been moving genes from the beginning of time. But also, I just want to illustrate how important, you know, the, the regulatory oversight has been. Chuck and I first met when uh, we put in place the USDA, EPA, and FDA oversight, which is still the gold standard around the world. But every country that we ship corn or soybeans to around the world has already done their independent health and safety assessments, as well as literally thousands of academic studies that all point to the same conclusion that's been codified by every major science organization around the world. All right, let me stop you for a second. I I just want to ask Margaret Mellon, do you concede that point or do you refute it? Well, I think that there is agreement that there is, that, that there is no evidence that the current applications of uh, genetic engineering have dramatic, acute, short-term no, effects. No, no, but, but, the, the, but the thrust of the argument, and then you can go on yeah, to your point, sure. the thrust of his argument is that there, is, that there has been an enormous amount of vetting going on at government levels around the world and that this in itself would act as a safety net. Do you, do you, refute, do you refute that that sort of vetting is going I on? I think that there's a lot of review that's gone on, and I think that it is focused on the point that I've just made, that there are no acute, dramatic effects of, of uh, the consumption of genetically modified organisms. Those assessments have left open this notion, two, two things. One, that there, there could be subtle, long-term effects that we have not identified, and that each application of genetic engineering needs to be looked at separately. So whatever you say about Roundup-ready crops, that says nothing about these new gene silencing technologies that are right up the way. Okay. So a blanket assertion of safety isn't scientifically justified. Alison Beninen, would you like to respond? Um, Sure. I mean, as a scientist, I I would never make a blanket assertion about safety, and I think it's very much dependent on each particular review. But as a scientist, I let the data tell me whether there's safety concerns. And after 20 years and thousands of studies, and I feel the weight of of the thousands of academic colleagues throughout the world that have done these safety studies that haven't found unique concerns, that I have to accept the evidence for what it is and let the data tell me whether it's safe. Chuck, you, you're, you said that if you thought that you would go to the other side, that you're not married to your position, that you're mm-hmm. married to, to data, because they're saying they have much more data for their position than you do. A couple of really important points need to be made. Um, the genetically engineered crops on the market today that are being planted by farmers and have been in the last few years are 
different from the genetically engineered crops that were planted in the early days. Rob Fraley and his colleagues have, have brought out a continuing series of, of improved, more effective products. And one of the things that they've done is they've stacked multiple traits into a single corn. One of the big concerns in the scientific community is that the Cadillac GE corn that Monsanto has developed is called Smart Stack, and it actually expresses eight different traits. So there's six different BT proteins that are expressed to control different insects, and two genes that confer tolerance to, to glyphosate, Roundup herbicide, and another herbicide called glufosinate. Well, this mixing of eight different traits in a single genetically engineered corn plant raises some you know, important scientific concerns, just like when you go to the doctor. The doctor is going to ask you what drugs you've been, what other medications you might be on before prescribing you something else for some other problem you may have. The, so the regulatory agencies, the industry, no one has done any serious research on the potential problems from these stack traits that are in today's GE foods. So Allison, Allison Veninenum, is that sort of study called for? In other words, your opponents are saying we're getting into so many areas where we've never been before that we should go in a very, very cautious way and try to stay ahead of disaster by figuring out what's dangerous. Well, I mean, I guess as a breeder, we routinely stack traits. We're always selecting for multiple traits going into So this is to you all familiar and old hat. It doesn't it, feel new it, to you. Well, it's, it's, it's breeding. Uh, you're always trying to improve multiple traits, and I think I need to understand um, the, the scientific kind of hypothesis why stack traits would be more dangerous when the individuals are not separate. I guess it's like looking at a broccolini, and you know broccoli safe, and, and the um, other pro- plant that was crossed. Why would a broccolini be more dangerous than its two parents? So, what's your biological basis? The debate's not about broccolini; it's about GM <laughs> foods. And I'd like to get back to what Robert Fraley said about they're accepted around the world. I mean, Robert, you know about the problem your sister company, Syngenta, has now getting corn shipments into China. Uh, in fact, the corn industry is in, uh, you know, in, in, very concerned about the growing rejection of shipments in China and some other countries because of unapproved traits. It, it's really, I think, uh, disingenuous to suggest that uh, all over the world, all countries have opened their arms to GE crops when, in fact, right, the let's trend let's is Let's let him respond to that, Robert, Robert Fraley. So yeah, the picture's not so, so rosy, let, your let me, I'd be happy to respond to that, although it's you know, someone else's product. But I, I just want to come back... No, and, no, and, I, I want you to stay on point, because it's right in front of us now that the, the picture... You, part of the argument you made was that the, the ready acceptance around the world and your opponents just say, right, so, okay, not your company, but, but the product. Sure, let me, so let's uh, talk about it. So the issue is, to, to get the, uh, the products sold in the United States... You get FDA, USDA, and EPA approval, but then you get the import approval from all the countries around the world. Syngenta got the approval for every country but China. You know, they got 38 out of 39 import approvals, and there's one more to go, and I know they've been working really hard to get that approval. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate when there's a market disruption, but it probably wouldn't surprise folks here to know that there's uh, sometimes a little bit of politics and a little bit of uh, of mischief behind the scenes, and and that's what's gone on here. Margaret Mellon to respond. Well, I... (laughs) I mean, I think it's very important to note how much hassle, trade hassle, is associated with uh, the fact that the U.S. continues to embrace and push genetically modified food on the rest of the world, some of whom like it and many of whom don't. Um, In fact, there's, I think, a billion dollars of lost sales as a result of this 
trade disruption that we're talking about, but that's just one of many. I mean, there have been contamination incidents of all kind that have resulted in, in American crops being turned back. I mean, this is an expensive technology for us to push in today's world. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator, and we have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, genetically modify food. And uh, Alison Benning and your opponents have said that, that in, in fact, after getting off to a good start, in a sense, the, the big success story of Roundup Ready wheat um, and BT corn have, have somewhat backfired and that their impact on the environment has begun to be a negative because they've led to the uh, weeds resistant to herbicide and to pesticides and more spraying as a result. What's your response to that? Well, I, I mean, again, I think you've got to look at the application and what the actual product is, and I think it's the, the effect of, of BT crops has been a dramatic reduction in insecticide use, especially in the developing world. And, I mean, I stated the summary of that paper, which said the adoption has reduced chemical pesticide use by 37%. So there have been um, a number of studies that have looked at, at herbicides, and um, in some cases they've substituted Roundup for a different um, herbicide that they were using that was more environmentally degrading and that was that stayed longer in the environment, okay, and so they've moved you, to a you've, safer you've herbicide. You've nailed that point. I just want to take it to, to your opponent to respond. Um, I just want to you know, point Margaret out Mellon. that, for example, the, the meta-study of the 147 other studies, none of those studies were done after the evolution of resistant organisms, of resistant insects. So you're saying we don't know? You're saying that what your opponent says? No, I'm saying that the good news stories about biotechnology crops, um, and there are some, are all from the early days. But we can't, we know that it is inevitable that resistance is going to develop. Chuck John asked about to, to open up a discussion of the environmental impacts. Roundup Ready crops are grown now Take on... Take 10, 10, 15 seconds and tell people what? the dynamic of Roundup Ready crops. Okay, so farmer has a, a field of corn, soybeans, cotton, and weeds come up. Roundup is glyphosate herbicides, and in 1996, the first genetically engineered so-called herbicide-tolerant crop came on the market. And scientists at, at Monsanto put a new gene into corn, soybeans, cotton, and now other crops that makes it possible to spray glyphosate, which kills everything green that's growing. It would kill the corn without the gene. And so farmers can spray this broad-spectrum herbicide, a very effective herbicide. And not kill their corn. Not kill the corn, but kill the weeds. In, in the early years, it worked great. But in 2000, in Delaware, in a soybean field, the first glyphosate-resistant weed, it was a Mars tail, was created by Roundup Ready soybeans. By 2004, we had six or eight different serious glyphosate-resistant weeds, mostly in the southeast, including this Palmer amaranth that the, the stock of it can get as big as a, as a person's wrist, and it was breaking the cutter bars on cotton harvesting machines, and now there's like how perhaps did, 100 how did, million there, acres. I want to give you 15 weeds. more seconds. How did those weeds get to be resistant to Roundup? What, did they, what was their interaction with the corn? When you spray one herbicide over and over again on weeds... 
they're going to develop resistance. Okay. I, we, I just wanted people to understand. It's sort of a random mutation. So I want to take that to Rob Fraley. This sure. is your, tech, your area. Uh, it's real simple. You've all heard of antibiotic resistance. It's a problem, right? You're aware of it. So what should drug companies do? Should they not develop new antibiotics just because there's become a resistance to, a, to an antibiotic? Absolutely not. Roundup controls hundreds of weeds. In this country, 12 of them have become resistant. It still controls hundreds of weeds. It needs to be used effectively. And, Chuck, you were one of the first ones to point out that we should actually use combinations of herbicides, and that's what growers are doing today, and that's one of the, the, the benefits of, of, of being smarter and stewarding these products better. Rob, back when we had that conversation, I might have Chuck also suggested it's not a great idea to put antibiotics in plants. We're going to go to audience that? questions now, and so raise your hand. The mic will be brought to you. Um, I can't resist calling on Bill Nye, the science guy. Woo-hoo! Hi, Bill. But I, I, I have to say, Bill Nye, the science guy, that your question also has to be as good as everybody else's. So. My question is about time. Everybody can agree, I think, that you can know exactly what happens to any organism, any plant, any crop. But you cannot know, I believe, you cannot know what happens to an ecosystem. So can the four of you agree on a number of seasons, a number of years, a number of plantings and harvestings, where we would be, I think what people are concerned about is the effects on an ecosystem, where you accidentally create... uh, you were almost Resistant at a question weed. mark there. Say again? You were almost at a question mark. You were well, four words away. Well, yeah. what, is the, what is the time scale for each side? Is it, for in geologic time, it's at least centuries, not five seasons. So that's what everybody, I think, what many people are concerned about okay. with regard to genetically modified Thank food. you. Let's take it to Margaret Well, Mellon. I mean, from my perspective, the time scale, you know, is something like decades. I mean, in the decades that we have seen herbicide-tolerant crops, the monarch population has decreased by almost 80%, and it is certainly because they've been deprived of uh, their, their food, which is a milkweed. They're, we're seeing effects on honeybees, on, and they're all subtle effects. You know, it's not like killing the honeybees. It's making it impossible for the honeybee to find its way back to the nest. And that's why decades, you're saying. Cray, crayfish and earthworms. I mean, we are seeing effects right now that have ecological implications. So the time scale is not that great. Alison Van Eenenum. Yeah, I mean, I think you're conflating um, the technology with, with other issues. I don't, the, the monarch butterfly is due to more effective controls of milk weed. Um, and so if we want more weed, then we should grow more weed. But the fact that we're controlling weeds more effectively... <laughs> no. I guess from California, no. I probably shouldn't that say that. Exactly. That's another debate. Uh, <laughs> yes or no to this statement? No. And, uh, you know, there's been no association with GMs and honeybees. I think that's just a, that's no, a red is, herring there are, there. Let me bring it to What concerns me is that we're talking about problems that are associated with the technology without considering the benefits. And there's trade-offs with every production system. And what we need to do is remove the problems but retain the benefits, not just throw the technology out. What what I'm concerned about, and many scientists, (laughs) is that GE crops came on the market in 1996. Monsanto and, and... Rob Fraley's very talented uh, 
molecular biologists, they're on their fifth generation now of genetically engineered corn. None of the GE corns that have been on the market have had a dominant position for more than five or six years. I would like to to have the ability to at least do two crop rotation cycles, which might be six or eight years, to see how the farming system has, has responded. But in that time period, the technology has changed. So you never really get a handle on what has happened. Okay, I'm going to go to another question. Far up in the corner, uh, very vociferous waving there. It seems like we're always um, comparing the success rates of GMO um, farming to a very, very chemically driven agriculture and not to uh, an organic agriculture. And that's where I get very confused with the argument because the um, against side seems to be against the chemically driven agriculture, whether it's in GMOs okay. or not. And is it viable to feed a, a world with organic farming? Do, do, we, need, do we need the technology? to survive. Uh, who would like to take it? Uh, uh, Marty Mellon. First of all, the, the challenge of feeding the world's hungry people is not one that is met by production of any kind. I mean, if you want to feed hungry people around the world, I can give you a list of ten things to do. You can build roads. You can raise their incomes. You can change the role of women. You can help people make their own decisions about what they want to grow and help them grow it. So production itself is not an answer to, uh, to the problems of hunger. But, but beyond that, I want to say that, you know, that genetic engineering, as I tried to say in my introductory remarks, is not really producing the kinds of traits that we need. Now, there are, I will just refer to one study in Nature magazine. It was a project. It started in 2010 trying to help African farmers developed corn crops that would grow on nitrogen-poor soils. Now, in that period of time, that project has been able to produce 21 conventionally bred varieties of corn adapted, you know, around Africa that grow better in their nitrogen-poor soils. Genetic engineering, which was also used, has produced one, and they don't think it'll be ready for 10 years. Okay, point made. Let's let Robert Fraley respond. Uh, I was going to say that we, we might actually reach, uh, reach some alignment. We've talked a lot about our differences. And, and one of the points I wanted to make, and food security challenge is the biggest challenge we face. We have to double the available food in 36 years. It's important that we make the right decisions today. The other important point on farming, and we've talked a lot about small farmers, my mentor was a guy named Dr. Norman Borlaug. And Norman always made the point If you help a farmer, you help poverty. Seventy percent of the world's poor are farmers. If you give them better tools to farm even incrementally better, you address not only poverty, but you address food security. And and so these are all complex, interrelated issues. There are no simple solutions, but I think we should play the game with all of our tools. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is genetically modify food. On to round three. Round three, closing statements by each debater in turn. And here to speak for the motion, Allison Van Enenum, a genomics and biotechnology researcher in the Department of Animal Science at UC Davis. 
For too long, the debate over the merits of genetically modified food has focused on unrealised hypothetical risks and has been conflated with the use of pesticides. It has not addressed how GM could help with the very real risks faced by the hungry and malnourished. There are costs associated to excessive precaution. Doing nothing is doing something. Hunger and malnutrition are real risks, risks that kill over 20,000 people daily, and most of those who die are children. These are not talking points, they're people. As a mother and a scientist, what concerns me is the fear-mongering campaign against genetically modified food is forestalling scientists from using this breeding method to help produce more nutritious and sustainable food sources for millions of people. Vote yes for GM food. Thank you, Alison Van Eenenum. And our motion is genetically modified food. And here to give his closing statement against this motion, Chuck Benbrook. He is program leader of Measure to Manage Farm and Food Diagnostics for Sustainability and Health. Unfortunately, the way that the GE technology and, and crop revolution has unfolded, it's, it's really turned into kind of an arms race with weeds using herbicides as the, the, the sole hammer. And as a result, we've had this spread of resistant weeds and rapid, especially in the last 10 years, escalation in the use of herbicides. In 1995, the year before the GE revolution, there was about 27 million pounds of glyphosate applied by farmers in American agriculture. Uh, Ten years later, it, it had gone up to 157 million pounds. And in 2014, USDA data shows pretty clear it's about 230 million pounds of glyphosate was applied. We have about 300 million acres of cultivated cropland. So we're talking about two-thirds of a pound of glyphosate herbicide, if it was spread evenly across the United States, could be applied on every acre of cropland. That's why we've got glyphosate in our blood, in our hair. Uh, that's why we ha- the scientists are concerned, even though it's generally regarded as a relatively safe pesticide, there's reason for serious worry here. Thank you, Chuck Benbrook. The motion, genetically modify food. And here to summarize his position supporting this motion, Robert Fraley, Executive Vice President and Chief Technology Officer at Monsanto. What I'd like to do is actually highlight what a vote against the motion really means, what it would be like to live in a world without GMO crops, what that would look like. First thing, there would be a significant impact to the land. Without GMOs, farmers would need to dramatically increase their use of herbicides and insecticides. I estimate it would be about 100 million pounds added to the environment each year. Second, since GMOs improve yields and help farmers deliver more food, in their absence means we're going to have to farm more land. And the pressure that will put on will mean we'll drain more wetlands, we'll we'll cut down more forests, we'll look at more prairie lands because people will fundamentally eat. Third, voting against uh, the GMO technology really means exacerbating climate change because it means we go backwards. We have to take tractors and run up and down the fields and plow, and we release more greenhouse gas emissions. Banning GMO crops is equivalent to taking and putting 26 million new cars on the road from a greenhouse perspective. And finally, voting against GMOs means foregoing all those opportunities that Dr. Van Eneman has talked about. You know, it's a relatively new technology. The future is ahead of us. We're at the tip of the iceberg stage and what's possible. So I hope for the sake of all of our families, and I hope for the sake of all the people on the planet, that you vote to keep all of our options open and vote yes to support GM food. Thank Thank you, you. Robert Fraley. 
And the motion is genetically modify food. And here to summarize her position against the motion, Margaret Mellon, a science policy consultant and former senior scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. If you want to know what the world would look like without GE, you might want to look at Europe. Europe has an incredibly productive agriculture, so much so that they're all paying you know, subsidies just like we're, we're paying. I, I would say they're still using too much in the way of, uh, of herbicides and pesticides, but it's a very productive, safe, capable uh, agriculture system that you know, we, would, we would all be, I think, very comfortable to live in. We have to look at the fact that there are still safety concerns about this technology, particularly about the long-term, the long-term effects. And that's what the American Cancer Society says. Yes, the current uh, products are safe, but the long-term concerns are still out there. So we can't pretend that those issues have been thrown away. Um, I think we can say that since genetic engineering has been introduced, it has simply failed to address the big problems that are out there, but that there are technologies that can do that. So, Margaret Millen, I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank I you very much. I urge you to vote against it. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. The first thing I want to say is this is obviously a very, very passionate debate, and there are strong feelings on all sides. But even with that, uh, I felt that the, the, the integrity and the civility the debaters brought to the stage, they lived up to the spirit of Intelligence Squared. So I congratulate you all for that. All right, I now have the final results. You have voted twice, once before the debate and once again after the debate. And again, the numbers, and again, the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. Let's look at the first vote. In the first vote on the motion, genetically modified food, 32% agreed, 30% were against, 38% were undecided. Those are the first results. Remember, again, the team whose numbers changed the most between first and second will be declared our winner. Let's look at the second vote. The team arguing for the motion, their second vote was 60%. They went from 32% to 60%. They picked up 28 percentage points. That is the number to beat. But let's look at the team against the motion. Their first vote was 30%. Second vote, only 31%, only a 1% move. That means the team arguing for the motion, genetically modified food, has carried this debate. Our congratulations to them. And thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Maureen McMurray, Taylor Quimby, and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is director of production. Chris Kamakawa is our researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org to hear the full unedited version or to sign up for the Intelligence Squared podcast visit npr.org forward slash Intelligence Squared Crucial support of the Intelligence Squared U.S. debate series comes from its generous members and donors with a special thank you to the Rosencrantz Foundation dedicated to promoting fresh and effective intellectual perspectives and encouraging the highest levels of achievement and innovation in public policy, higher education, and the arts. Additional support comes from Christopher W. Johnson, Profit Capital Asset Management, the Georgie e. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Paul E. Singer, 
David A. Coulter, and Mortimer D. A. Sackler. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. Our friends at NPR Music are holding a contest to find the next great unknown musician or band. Here's the deal. Record one original song, no covers, post it to YouTube, and enter at npr.org slash tinydeskcontest by January 19th, 2015. The winner will be flown to Washington, D.C. to perform as part of the Tiny Desk Concert Series and play a couch trip into Austin showcase in March. Enter at npr.org slash tinydeskcontest. Tiny Desk Contest. Good luck.